This is the last study in our series on Lamentations. And the, uh, you may remember from a couple of weeks ago, we had a bit left over at the end of chapter four, and so we have that, and then chapter five. The quotation I put up from uh, Calvin's commentary is on, from chapter five. Uh, it really fits uh, well with that chapter, but in a way, it summarizes the, the whole of the book in the way uh, in suffering we need to look to God. Calvin says, for when we fix our eyes on present things, we must necessarily vacillate as there is nothing permanent in the world. And when adversities bring a cloud over our eyes, then faith in a manner vanishes. At least we are troubled and stand amazed. Now the remedy is to raise up our eyes to God. For however confounded things may be in the world, yet he remains always the same. His truth may indeed be hidden from us, yet it remains in him. In short, were the world to change and perish a hundred times, nothing could ever affect the immutability of God. So I'd like for you to turn, as I said, back uh, to chapter 4, or turn to chapter 4. I want to read the last two verses of that chapter to finish up our study there. And then we'll go to chapter 5, and I hope we'll see uh, in chapter 5 how relevant uh, Calvin's comments are for not only that one verse, but the, the note on which the book ends. So remember Lamentations 4. I admit this was a couple of weeks ago. Lamentations 4 was, uh, even among the chapters of Lamentation, a, a dark chapter. There are things which we'd rather not talk about, indescribable suffering. And at um, the end, in verse 20, uh, where we ended last time, even... Uh, seemingly hope in the Davidic uh, Messiah that God would deliver uh, through his appointed Messiah. And there's a a rather sudden shift at the end of the chapter, just as there is uh, elsewhere in Lamentations. So I'll pick up the reading at verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. As I said, this is a rather sudden shift. Uh, The poet and the people have prayed earlier in the book for God to avenge them, for God to see what their enemies have done to them. And here God is, in effect, answering that prayer. So unlike the earlier part of the chapter, this is an oracle. This is God speaking, well, through Jeremiah, but speaking uh, to the people and to Edom about what he will do. Now, you may remember the history of Edom. Edom is actually a fairly close relation, uh, blood-wise, to the nation of Israel. Uh, Close blood-wise, but uh, they were often at enmity with each other, right? There were often conflicts between them. And uh, the record of the scriptures is that Edom rejoiced over the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. You may remember that, for example, from Psalm 137, but there are other references uh, to Edom and other specific references to that event. Uh, Interestingly enough, Edom was granted by Babylon control of the southern part of Judah. So they were disinherited to that extent by the Edomites, and that continued uh, for quite some time. So verse 21 is a response, if you will, to that. 
Uh, Edom, you've been taunting God's people. You've been rejoicing in their downfall. Uh, so it says, uh, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Now, this is obviously an ir- ironic taunt. Uh, they're not really expecting Edom to rejoice. Uh, the effect of it is rejoice while you can, because the judgment is coming to you. And that's what uh, the rest of verse 21 says. Now, that then is followed immediately in verse 22 by the deliverance of the people. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, their daughter of Zion. So there's the daughter of Edom and there's the daughter of Zion, but their ends are completely different. God has a purpose for his people, which extends beyond the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. And before we talk about that uh, promise to Zion, let me just address the seeming uh I don't know, disharmony between the judgment that comes on the wicked, the rebellious, those who are not God's people, and the deliverance that's given to God's people. They don't really seem to go together, maybe at first sight. Why should they be combined? But if you think about that, it's actually a fairly common scriptural theme. I put up uh, one reference. Oh, I did put up one reference, but I need to forward the slide. Um, to uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7, there Paul refers to the destruction of the enemy at the time when he will deliver his people. And that's, of course, the, the ultimate redemption and the return of Christ. So this, and you can see the same thing in the book of Revelation, right? In the book of Revelation, there uh, is a prayer for the condemnation, for the uh, final judgment on the enemies of God, just at the same time as the, as the return of Christ and the ultimate deliverance of the people are there. So although we may not immediately make that connection, the scriptures do make the connection that Lamentations 4.21 is, uh, makes with 4.22. The destruction of the enemies of God's people is closely related to the deliverance of his people. Now, 4.22 is uh, a really s- striking verse, and uh, here's where it helps to know the Hebrew or t- have t- someone tell you what the Hebrew is, that the first word in verse 22 in the Hebrew is accomplished or completed. That's why I gave the title, it is finished. It's a one word statement of completion. And strikingly, that's the last, right, that's the last verse of this acrostic. It's actually the last verse in an acrostic because chapter five is uh, not an acrostic form. If you will, this is God's final word in response to these acrostic poems of lament. Completed is your punishment, the punishment of your iniquity. It is finished. That's a very uh, striking thing because that, when we're in the midst of affliction, we, it seems there never is an end, right? It goes on and on. And you can sense that uh, in the earlier chapters. We'll see that again in chapter five. Is there ever an end to it? And yet God declares that there is an end. The punishment is accomplished. An interesting parallel would be to look at, uh, and we won't take the time to do so, but to look at Isaiah 41 and 2, right? We, we saw before there's a close parallel between the last part of Isaiah, beginning at chapter 40 and uh, much of the book of Lamentations. And there God says the same thing. Your, your uh, iniquity is accomplished, and not literally in the same words, but the same thought. Uh, he comforts his people because uh, their sins have been paid for. And that's a reminder, again, I've tried to emphasize this in the the connection with the Messiah. In the context of chapter 40, how does that come? It comes from the suffering servant who bears the punishment of his people and who delivers them 
from their exile from God brings them into fellowship with God. And so that's uh, ultimately what 4.22 points to, that finished is your punishment because God will deliver you in the end. And again, it's, there's, it's tied closely at the end of uh, 4.22 with Edom. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. So the contrast between the covenant of people of God and God's end for his people and the, uh, the end of those who uh, do not believe in God. Okay. Now you see why I didn't want to do that in five minutes, uh, although I guess that took about five minutes. A- any thoughts on the last part of chapter four? Okay. Let's turn then to chapter 5. So I'll read uh, chapter 5, the whole chapter. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We've given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones, boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us! For we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. So the, the last of the five poems in the Book of Lamentations is uh, shorter. You may have noticed that. It's about half the size of chapter four. So together, four and five are the lengths of the, the other uh, three chapters, each of the other three chapters. As I mentioned, it's also not in acrostic form, even though there are 22 verses, right? The same as as chapters 1, 2, and 4. It's actually not in acrostic form. So it's not going through the the A to Z of the Hebrew alphabet. So what is it? Well, it's a prayer. You probably noticed that as I read. It's a prayer calling to God to see the suffering and reproach of the people. Also confessing sin and asking God to act. It ends with hope. I think you would have noticed that in verses uh, 19 and following. Um, Hope that's based in the sovereignty of God 
and yet uh, acknowledging that in this life we have to wait. So that's uh, my as brief as possible summary of what uh, the chapter is about, and we'll we'll go through the parts, uh, some parts more quickly than others. Now let me just uh, comment on the setting. Um, I think maybe at one point Dave asked me whether these were sort of written at different times uh, during the destruction. This this chapter does seem to be set uh, to describe those who are left in the land after the destruction. You probably noticed uh, as we read through that. So uh, the current term would be these are internally displaced people. Unfortunately, we hear about that quite a bit now. So they've lost all political power and uh, they have no you know, no benefit of the social uh, structure that they had before. They're really at the mercy of whoever is around uh, and uh, seems to be in charge. And it's uh, in that way uh, a fitting conclusion for the book because it it shows the full effect of the destruction that we've seen already. So I want to divide this up uh, in. Okay, yeah, so forward that again. Uh, I want to divide this up into, well, we just did the introduction, to a prayer of lament and confession, and uh, that'll have three parts, and then the last part, 19 through 22, the, the concluding appeal. So first, let's think about this prayer of uh, lament and confession, the first 18 verses. So a good way to get a sense of what's going on is to look at the first uh, verse of this, there's an opening plea, remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Now this call to remember, uh, we've seen, I put up some references to Psalms that are very closely related to the book of Lamentations, so Psalms of lament over the destruction of the nation or the loss of uh, the ruler. Uh, remember that when we call on God to remember, uh, we are calling on God to act. So the best parallel to this is in Exodus. I put up one reference in chapter 6, but this comes up more than one in Exodus. Once in Exodus, God appears to Moses and he says, I've remembered my covenant. And what that means is I'm acting now to deliver my people. So unlike in our case where remembering may actually result in no action, like you might forget again what you just said you were going to remember, uh, here remember, O Lord, means act. Remember your covenant promises and act upon them and think upon us. The reference to the reproach also is important. Look and behold our reproach. So because they bear the name of God, this is really a plea for God's name to be honored. Uh, so Matthew Henry says it well. Uh, it reflected upon the name of, and honor of that God who had owned them for his people. Because God had put his name on them, the reproach that they are bearing, and the reproach is spelled out in the rest of uh, this section, is really a reproach upon God. And that's a reminder, if I could make an application to prayer in general, that prayer is best shaped by concern for the honor and glory of God. That doesn't mean we forget our own needs. In fact, that's, that's what the chapter does. But it means we put our needs in the context of God's honor and glory, and God's covenant promises to be faithful to us. That's the best way to encourage us in our prayers, and that's the kind of prayer that uh, God teaches us to pray in the Psalms, for example, and, and here in Lamentations. So that's uh, a general uh, appeal at the beginning. And then uh, the rest of the section, verses 2 through 18, 
goes on to spell out the uh, suffering that they're undergoing. I'm only going to highlight uh, parts of this. Uh, I said chapter four, four was one of the darkest. There are parts of this that I just read that you notice that are, are very hard to read, a description of what the people went through. Uh, but let me focus, for example, on verse two. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. So this is uh, not just soldiers quartering in houses, you know, one of the provocations for the American Revolution. This is disinheritance. These are people who are losing their houses and their land. And that's significant enough for the destruction of a society. But remember, the way the land was passed on in Israel was from one generation to another. It was kept within the family. That was the command of God. So this is not only that kind of annoyance of having someone live in your house. This is really tearing apart the social structure that God had put in place by the means of the inheritance. And it's even deeper than that because losing the land really meant that God had forsaken them. The land was the promised land, right? That was central to the covenant with Abraham. And so to give up the land to foreigners and aliens uh, means that they are forsaken by God. They're, you might say, societally vulnerable because they have no fixed place to live. They have no future inheritance. Their children have nothing to look to. But you might say, even worse than that, it seems that God has forsaken them. He has turned away from them. He has turned them away from his land because of their sins. Now, a couple of other points highlight the same thing. And, and again, I'm, I'm just going to try to summarize what the section says. So look down at verses uh, 14 and 15. You can see, again, this uh, desolation of society. Uh, the elders have ceased from gathering at the gate, so that's not like the old guys who hang out in the donut shop and drink coffee, right? That The gathering at the gate was where the society functioned. That's where judgments were ruled. That's where people gathered. That's where they enjoyed entertainment, uh, young men singing their music. Uh, all of that is gone. So I want to emphasize that point again, because when you look at the suffering and lamentations, you can look at it at different, le different levels. There's terrible physical suffering that we've seen uh, many times, and it's, it's the hardest part in some sense to read. But you need to realize that it affects them on every level, that the whole society is displaced. All of the functions of justice, and uh, the perpetuation of the society and the, and the presence of children is gone. They're humiliated. They're reproached. They're insulted. They're touched on many different levels. And that's, uh, I think, uh, in one of the things in studying the Book of Lamentations that struck me, besides all the other things, is just how, how complete the devastation is. It's not just physical suffering, which would be bad enough, but it's it uh, touches on the deepest uh, parts of who they are. And that's really, uh, that really comes to a culmination in uh, verse 18. So uh, I'm trying to, again, summarize what it is they've suffered before we go back and look at their confession of sin. Uh, but what is it that really is the, the ultimate in terms of their statement of what they have suffered? They say it is because of Mount Zion which is desolate, with foxes uh, or jackals uh, walking about on it. This was the place where God was to be worshipped. 
This is where he had set his temple. This is where, to use our terminology, the means of grace were. This was the gathering of the people and the worship of God. And this was God's presence with them so that they knew that they were his people. And that is no more. And again, that teaches us in thinking and having perspectives on our prayers and especially on our sufferings to to count, okay, there are many different layers. We've already talked about that. But what is it that touches us uh, most deeply? Is it is it the fact that God seems far from us? Is it that we're not able to fully participate in his worship in the means of grace? That That's not to discount the rest of what they've suffered, but it is, I would argue, at the heart of uh, the book and especially at the heart of this uh this prayer for restoration, how can it be the place that where you put your name, where you dwell among us, is desolate? Only wild animals uh, walking around on it. So the next part of this is their confession of sin. But let me pause and see if you have any comments or questions so far. Mainly we've talked about their uh, prayer giving their suffering. Yes, Dave. So opening this lesson with references to yeah. is kind of interesting because they're easy to forget. Yeah. Obadiah has an entire prophecy just about this incident. And he recounts a little bit of their history where right. he says, you guys should have been the wiser cousin and paid attention and instead you helped right. everybody come in and do these things. And then yeah. you laugh. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good part point. Uh, the the long suffering of God, um, we so easily forget. And that uh, the point you made actually comes up uh, in the section on uh, their confession of sin, also. But um, you know, when you read Lamentations, it's five chapters, but this has been going on for hundreds of years: rebellion against God, idolatry, and Edom has been doing its thing. Uh, for a long time, too. That's very good. Thank you. Other thoughts? Okay, well, I said then in the prayer, uh, their 
first, you might say, the sort of the overriding in terms of the number of verses is the statement of suffering. But key, and you know, you shouldn't wait it by the number of verses. Key is also their confession of sin. So I look at verse uh, 17 first, and this ties in with what Dave was saying. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Now, at first sight, that looks perhaps like an escape from responsibility. It's all my parents' fault, right? It, and there is both Ezekiel and Jeremiah had to deal with this. You know, our fathers have eaten, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is not that. And there are reasons for saying it's not that. One of them is that they do confess their own sins in this chapter. Uh, instead, you should understand this as recognizing exactly what Dave is saying. This is the, their generation is the culmination of rebellion over so, so many generations. In other words, they don't stand in isolation as rebels. They didn't learn from their parents' rebellion, if you want to put it that way. They did only more, and so they say judgment has come upon them. Now that uh, statement, that sense of the culmination of judgment, I, I want to come back to in thinking about sort of in larger terms, in, in terms of the fall uh, and not of Jerusalem, but the, the fall of Adam and uh, the consequences for us. But there, their acknowledgement in verse seven is that the tremendous things that they're talking about are not merely because of a rebellion of a moment but because of the long-suffering of God, excellent uh, preparation for this, the long-suffering of God, and their father's sin, they're long gone, but we're doing just what they did, and we're bearing uh, the results, the cumulative effect of all of that. Now, I... uh, Yeah, I think I I won't uh, go any further on that because we do do need to finish today, but uh, let me just notice the other... Uh, a really important confession, which is in verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. This is at the, the end of the recitation of their sufferings. Our dance has turned into mourning, and then the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So the crown fallen from their head is an indication of their being really royalty as God's royal people. They had a high standing because of their covenant with God. And they, of course, enjoyed uh, rich privileges from that as well. But how would you conclude a statement of sufferings like that? Would you say, woe to us because all these things have happened to us? That's not what they say, is it? Woe to us for we have sinned, right? They're They're not lamenting here the effects of their sin. They're lamenting their sin. And they're saying this is because of our sin. It's a very powerful statement. The woe to us, this is you know what Isaiah said when he saw the glory of God, you know, I am undone. A curse is upon me. And they cry out in recognition that all of the suffering, all of the desolation come has come upon them because of their sin. As I said, I'd like to just step back a little bit in in the invitation to the book of Lamentations I gave. It seems like a long time ago, but thankfully some of you are still here uh, coming. uh, I guess you accepted the invitation. Um, I tried to connect us with the book 
not only that the you know the Israelites are our fathers, that's what Paul says in, to the Corinthians, but but also when we see suffering like this, we can step back and ask, uh, isn't this what the whole world is going through ultimately because of the fall, because of the rebellion of our first parents? And you can see that in the crown being fallen from our head, that the great glory that Adam had as made in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, truly the crown has fallen from the head of, of the people because uh, of uh, the sin of Adam. But uh, even more so, perhaps, the connection with verse 7, our fathers have sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. It is uh, amazing to think about how much suffering there is in the world by people who, in a sense, did nothing to deserve it. Now, I'm about to put that in perspective, but you think of children who suffer because of uh, careless parents. You think of all sorts of vulnerable people who suffer. And it's because we live in a world that's under the curse of God. That's ultimately the case. Now, that doesn't uh, deny human responsibility. Adam's sin is imputed to us, but also we are corrupt in our nature and we live in accordance with that corrupt nature. So it's no excuse. I'm just trying to help us get a perspective on on what Lamentation says about our world as a whole. We can lament indeed. The whole creation is groaning because of the curse that has come. And yet uh, God's people can look forward to the renewal of all things because the last Adam has uh, perfectly obeyed and we have righteousness in him. Okay, so uh, let's move on then to the last section, which is the concluding appeal. And you may think, well, I have 15 minutes, so I have plenty of time. The, the last section of the book is, uh, so uh, like lots of parts of the book, it's it's uh, amazingly uh, packed with uh, surprises and uh, with uh, fundamental truths. So at the end of the chapter, after describing all of the suffering, after confessing the sins, again, what would you expect the response to be? It might be utter hopelessness, but look at verse 19. You, O Lord, remain forever, your throne from generation to generation. It's an absolutely astounding statement. Um, I quoted uh, David Dixon earlier on, who said this book must have been inspired by the Spirit because no one could express the sufferings of the people the way they do. But uh, no one also could express hope like that in contrast with Mount Zion being desolate. So that's the connection. You look at the state of the church, to put it in current terms, uh, they see the state of the church as completely desolate. There's no hope. But the point is that even though the church changes, God doesn't change. So that's a paraphrase from David Dixon, I think. Uh, God doesn't change, and therefore they have hope. That is the point of this. And it's also important to set it in their own context. Uh, it's a, I think we would say it's a counter-cultural statement. So let me ex- explain that because it's, it's, I think, helpful for reflecting further. In their world, in the world of the ancient Near East, if one king defeated another king in battle, that meant that the, the first king's god had defeated the other god. The god that lost the battle was defeated. And so when they saw Mount Zion desolate, Babylon would have said, 
our God is greater than your God. But that's not what they say. Their deduction is exactly the opposite of that. It is our God is sovereign. Our Lord rules. And that, of course, is spelled out in the rest of the book because they know that it was God who brought this, right? It was God's hand in all this that brought the uh, chastisement against them. And that's why they can look at Mount Zion instead of saying, we've lost to the Babylonians. They can say, you, Lord, remain forever your throne from generation to generation. It's an absolutely amazing statement in the context in which they were living and in which they uh, faced in terms of the taunts of the enemy. There's one other important uh point I want to make before I try to connect it with the, the rest of this, and that, that is verse 19 is almost word for word the same as Psalm uh, 102, verse 12. Psalm 102 is a messianic psalm. It's quoted in the New Testament as applied to Christ. It actually part of the psalm, the Father speaks to the Son. But in this part of the son, psalm, uh, it appears that the Son is praying to the Father and in the midst of his suffering, the one who is afflicted, Christ himself is uh, saying this in Psalm 102, you, O Lord, remain forever, your throne from generation to generation. Again, I want to remind you that we've seen again and again in Lamentations that Christ identifies himself with the suffering of his people. Christ is not distant from them. Christ knows our suffering, and he leads us in prayer to look to God who doesn't change. Now, there are two possible reactions. Well, there are probably lots of them. There are two possible reactions to verse 19. You can say, I'm a good Calvinist, so whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You, Lord, remain forever. You know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's actually not good Calvinism to say that. That's faith. But notice what their application of that is in verse 20. You, Lord, remain forever. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Knowing who God is doesn't tell us to be silent. It tells us to pray in acknowledgement of who God is. It encourages us that he is the one we should call out on. We shouldn't give up, right, in our suffering. We shouldn't say there is no hope. Because God is sovereign, he's the one who will remember us. And so we can call out to him. You might think of uh, Psalm 22, again, to think of a messianic prayer, you know, um, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a long, a similar line. Why, oh God, do you forget us forever? And I want to emphasize it's, it's grounded in the hope that they have in a God who doesn't change, that God will not forget them forever, though it seems like it at times, and it may, uh, it may go on for a long time, that that's not the case. So that then is followed by verse, uh, verses 21 and 22, which should really go together. So the outline of this little section, I probably should have given it at the beginning, is, is first there's uh, an affirmation of who God is, and then a specific plea to God based on who that he is in verse 20, and then a concluding uh, plea to God to deliver in verses 21 and 22. So verse 20 is really, I guess, a question, and then verses 21 and 22 is the, the concluding plea. So verse 21, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. So uh, 
the the second uh, we will be restored is is the same verb as turn again. It's 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 saying turn us back to you, and we will be turned, right? It's it's some an effect that will happen to us. This is again calling on God to keep His covenant. So we've talked a lot about the covenant curses in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. Uh, I didn't even refer to them here, but you know much of what is described in terms of their suffering is what God said would happen. But in Deuteronomy 30, after that's over, God promises that he will circumcise their hearts. He will turn their hearts to himself. You can see the promise like that in Ezekiel. So they're essentially saying in verse 21, God, turn us back to yourself as you have promised that you will do. Restore us to yourself and then we will be restored. Now, on an individual level, this is an interesting prayer to pray. Uh, Cornelius Van Til has this little pamphlet, Why I Believe in God. And he says that his parents taught him to pray when he was a child. Basically, this verse, there's a closely related verse in Jeremiah, so it's not clear, but they taught him to pray, Convert me, O Lord, and I will be converted. He said as a child, he didn't really understand the paradox of that, but that's what his parents taught him to pray. And that, that's, it's a really striking acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God to work in our hearts. And yet for us to to come before him, to to call, as God's people do here, they realize that they have sinned. And they realize they're really their only hope is in God's grace and turning them back. Again, that's not an excuse for laziness or for um, rebellion, but it is a confession that their hope is ultimately in God. And then verse 22, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Okay, so the book seems to end on a real downer. Like, I just took back everything I said. Okay, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about translations of it and, and uh, you know, how to interpret it. But I think it's clear enough from what we've already read, however you understand verse 22, it's not denying everything that's been said. Verse 22 has to be understood as consistent with the hope that they've already expressed. But it also acknowledges that hope waits, right? We don't have yet what we want. We're still in suffering. We are still waiting for you, O Lord. That's why that question is in verse 20. So however we understand verse 22, we can't, first of all, deny the hope that's there, and second of all, deny the fact that God's people are taught to wait. So how should we understand verse 22? Um, well, if you read commentaries, you know, they like they may, may have uh, five pages on the first part of the chapter and then a page and a half on verse 22. So there are lots of different uh, possibilities of understanding it. Uh, let me tell you what I found the most helpful, and uh, then we can, if you'd like, we can talk about it some more. Uh, that word that's translated unless is actually two words in the Hebrew, and those same two words are translated elsewhere in Lamentations, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse, did I write it down? Uh, thir 32, as even though. And I think that makes good sense of what this is saying. 
Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days of old, even though you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. They're acknowledging their current condition, which, at least as far as their sense is, God has utterly rejected. It's rejecting you have rejected us. That's the utterly rejected us. They're very angry. They, they acknowledge that that's where they are. And they say, even though that's the case, Lord, we pray that you would turn us back because you are a God who keeps covenant. You are a God who doesn't change. You are the God who says you will do this. So that sense of unless, those two Hebrew words as, even though, as I said, you can look in Lamentations 3.32. It's, I think it's just translated with the one word though in there, but it uh, makes sense of the passage. It preserves both of those aspects. The interpretation of verse 22 really doesn't hang as much on the word that's translated unless in New King James, but also on what do you mean by utterly rejected? So if utterly rejected and are very angry means you're done with us, then then uh, you're going to have to be translating unless in a different way or understanding the meaning in a different way. But I think that makes the most sense of what uh, the the rest of the passage is saying, and it helps uh, it helps bring in both of those aspects. Right? I, I've said this before. You know, you might like the Book of Lamentations to end on the so I'll do the Disney thing. You know, the Disney note where there's this wonderful music and everyone's happy, and it's all over again. That's not the way it ends. I mean, even without verse 22, that's not the way it ends. They're still suffering. They still have no singing in the gates. They've still lost their land. They sense that God has forsaken them, but they have hope. They believe that God's throne endures from generation to generation. And so they believe he will keep his covenant and return them to themselves. Any uh, comments or questions? I, I uh, sort of just quickly gave an explanation of, of why uh, I think we should take that interpretation. I, I put some other references up. Uh, Jeremiah 14 also underlines this, this point of view. Uh, Paul says in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people. He says it flatly. God has not, and he has in mind the Jewish people. So they are not rejected. However you understand verse 22, God will restore them. But uh, comments or questions, uh, that part or whatever? Yes, Dave. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I was going to say thank you for letting me teach the class because I learn a lot. And I can't believe you guys sat through five chapters of, <laughs> of all the things we read about. So thank you. Um, I, I think the, the error of helping people who are in affliction by just saying God is sovereign is... Uh, is one thing I've learned from the book. Now, you do need to say God is sovereign. You do need to say there is hope. 
but you also need to recognize that there's no singing at the gates. You know, the young men are silent. It's a time for mourning. And sometimes the tendency is to go one way or the other, uh, but there are five chapters that are pretty much unrelenting things that you don't really want to hear about. And maybe if someone is suffering and talking to you, you don't want to hear about it either. I've got enough troubles. But um, Lamentations teaches us that this life is a life of suffering, and we need to learn to help each other through it. It's also a life of hope and joy in God, so Debbie Downer or whatever. But uh, yeah, that's a good question. But that's that's one thing that struck me. I think if I can give a second one, it is the presence of the Messiah in the book, which I had sort of thought about. You know, I mentioned the Messiah, Handel's Messiah, which takes a verse from this. I thought, well, maybe he was kind of cheating. His librettist was, but no. It's uh, very richly connected to the New Testament and uh, Isaiah and the Psalms. Other thoughts, comments, or questions? Want to discuss prepositions like unless? Uh, Let me add, just since I have sort of have a minute, I'll add one interesting uh, fact. So in the traditional reading in the synagogue, Um, there were uh, four Old Testament books which end in a similar way, like sort of an ambiguous or a negative note. Uh, They are Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, and Malachi. Maybe Malachi, the most familiar, you know, God is going to come and and, uh, bring judgment. The synagogue practice was to read the last verse the way you normally would, so read through to the end, and then read the next to the last verse as the last part of the reading. Now, that sounds kind of like you're cheating. But actually, the more I thought of it for Lamentations, even though I wouldn't do that, it, it is a good point to realize, read verse 22 in the context of verse 21, not to separate the two from each other. But uh, that's a sort of a curious factoid. And at least in traditional synagogue readings, they, if they thought this was a really depressing way to end the book, they would read the verse before, the penultimate verse after the last verse. <laughs> kind of a curious thing. Okay, let's close in prayer.